you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. We have been in a sermon series called In His Steps for a couple years, and then we are at the end of Christ's life, uh, where we've been going through the life of Christ chronologically, but now we're in Passion Week. We're actually in very early, early Friday morning of Passion Week, and um, the title of the message today is Regret Versus Repentance. Regret versus repentance. And so if you have your bulletin, there's a little bulletin insert in there. You can take some notes and jot some stuff down if you would like to. Uh, Most of us, if not all of us, have been betrayed at some point. Um, And just by saying that, you might be be reminded of a a, uh, middle school incident where your best friend or your sibling decided to... um, you know, make a move on that, that individual of the opposite sex before you could. And, uh, and you felt betrayed by your best friend. You knew I liked her, whatever. And uh, a coworker might have heard about your idea uh, for a new process improvement. That's the buzzword in the, in the business world. Uh, a new process improvement. And they heard about your idea and they stole it. And they presented it to management before you could as if it were their own. And you felt betrayed by them. Um, Maybe you shared something with a friend in confidence. And it damaged your reputation because they didn't keep it in confidence. Betrayal is something that happens when we trust someone else. Now, some people are worthy of that trust and other people are not worthy of the trust. And the Bible makes it clear that betrayal is a common human experience and is often rooted in jealousy. Lucifer betrayed God because he was jealous of God's majesty. Cain betrayed his brother Abel because he was jealous of God's approval. Korah betrayed his cousin Moses because he was jealous of Moses' leadership authority. David was betrayed by his son Absalom because he was jealous of his father's throne. Jeremiah was betrayed by other prophets because they were jealous of God's anointing on his life. Not even Jesus was immune to this experience. Within a matter of hours, Jesus endured two betrayals by two individuals. But they had two very different outcomes. And it's all about the difference between regret and repentance. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 26 this morning, looking at at a good chunk of scripture so that you can get the uh, picture of where we are and what was going on. It says this, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came out, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. So that word kiss is a repetitive, tender kiss on the cheek uh, in order to make no mistake as to who they should arrest. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we know this in another passage to be Peter, he stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Judas's name is synonymous with treachery, disloyalty, and betrayal. If you call someone at work You're a Judas. It's never meant to be a compliment. I've never heard of a positive Judas. It's like the name Adolf. He ruined it for everybody following. Nobody names their kid Adolf anymore. Uh, Your kid named Adolf may grow up to be a great person, might cure cancer, but nobody's going to name him that. All right? It's one of those off-limits names. And so when you call somebody Judas, it's not intended to be a compliment. When we read the account of the betrayal of Christ, we often want to know who he was and why he did what he did. Judas's last name, there's, there's very little that we know about Judas. We do know his last name, Iscariot, um, which technically is not his last name. It's the Greek version of Judas's hometown, Kerioth, which means Judas from Kerioth. Um, this town, Kerioth, is in southern Judea. Now, as far as we can tell, Judas is the only disciple that was not from Galilee. Galilee was the northern part of Israel, and Judea was the southern part of uh, Israel. And so, probably right after Jesus' baptism, when he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, Jesus made his way down into Judea and began to do ministry there. And that's probably where Judas first met Jesus. He sought him out, he followed him, and then he was chosen to be in his inner circle of 12 disciples. He also became the church treasurer, and he kept the money bag that paid for all their expenses. If you do a quick search of the name Judas in the Bible, there is not one single positive statement made about this guy. Now, sometimes Peter was on the ball, and sometimes Peter shot his mouth off. And so sometimes Jesus had to correct Peter, but sometimes Peter got it right. Remember when, G- when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Peter sa- Jesus says, good job, man. God has revealed that to you. The Father has revealed that to you. And, and he calls him, uh, his previous name was Simon, Peter, and, and, or Simon, and he calls him Peter, which means pebble or stone. And, and so it's a compliment to him. But then later on, when Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and Peter says, God forbid it. And I, I made the comment, it's interesting when you say to God, you forbid this, God forbid this. You know, and, and so Jesus calls Simon Peter Satan because he is exhibiting the personality of the accuser and trying to prevent prophecy from take place, taking place. So sometimes Simon Peter is, has good moments and is called good things, and he's got his bad moments and called bad things. But Judas never has a good moment in Scripture. 
It's all bad moments. Around the middle part of Jesus' ministry, Jesus even referred to one of his disciples as a devil. He said, he talked about his disciples, but one of you is a devil, John 6, 71. Obviously a reference to Judas, though he didn't outright name who he was talking about. In John chapter 12, when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, poured out this uber expensive perfume on the feet of Christ, Judas grumbled that it should have been sold and the money should have gone to the poor. But in John 1, uh, I'm sorry, John 12, 6, he wrote, John said this, he said this, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was a thief. He was the devil. And what I think is so remarkable about all of this is that Jesus knew all of that. He knew how Judas would betray him. He knew what kind of a man Judas was. And Jesus still included him. And specifically called him to be part of the 12 disciples. We don't know why exactly, but I think, in my opinion, it was to give Judas full access to see the character, the ministry, and the compassion of the Son of God before he made the willful decision to betray him. You're rarely, if ever, betrayed by an outsider Because they didn't earn your trust. You never let your guard down around them. You're only betrayed by an insider. Someone that you allow into your inner circle of friends or family. So what does scripture tell us about Judas' betrayal? The first thing, and if you want to fill in a blank, you could do that. The first thing, Judas sought to betray Jesus for profit. He sought to betray Jesus for profit. Jesus had sent some of his disciples into Jerusalem early to prepare the upper room for the Passover. And it's possible that Judas was one of those disciples because they certainly would have needed money to purchase the items for the meal, and Judas was the keeper of the money bag. But at some point, Judas snuck away and met with the chief priests. Matthew 26, 15, Judas asks the priest, The priest, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's hard to value. It's hard to know what the true value of that is in today's currency. Because at that time, there were multiple kinds of silver coins that were used. And they all had different levels of silver content in them. Which one the priests would have used is unknown. There's at least three different kinds. But the value of the 30 pieces of silver is actually not the point here. Matthew is the only gospel writer to include the actual price of betrayal. And he did that because he was writing his book to a Jewish audience. And it was an audience that would have recognized a reference Back to the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 11, the prophet used the phrase 30 pieces of silver in reference to two things. The first 
was it was the value of a slave under Jewish law according to Exodus 21.32. That verse states, if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels or 30 pieces of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So this is what one writer said. They said the prophet Zechariah in his prophecy, he asked the Israelites to pay him for the work that he had been doing among them. And that's what they gave him. 30 pieces of silver. It was intended to be an insult. They didn't value his prophecy. So God told Zechariah to take this slave's wages and throw it into the treasury or to throw it back in their faces. So now when Matthew says 30 pieces of silver and he has and 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 has Judas throw it back into the temple into the treasury later on it's a reference to this story in Zechariah in which the unfaithful Israelites undervalued a prophet of the Lord with an insulting amount of money what a slave was worth and Matthew is saying the priests were willing to pay almost nothing for Jesus. They were angry at Jesus for the scene he had made in the temple. Remember, he had flipped over the money changers' tables. And he railed against the corrupt priests who were profiting off of the sacrifices of people brought to Jerusalem to make... Uh, and they brought these uh, sacrifices out of duty, not devotion. 30 pieces of silver to the priests, to Zechariah, and to Matthew, and to Judas. It was the price of contempt. And the second thing that's interesting in Zechariah 11, right on the heels, right after this story that Zechariah tells about 30 pieces of silver, God spoke to Zechariah about the coming of a man who was called a worthless shepherd who, quote, does not care for those being destroyed, who would be mortally wounded in the head, possibly connecting the betrayer of Jesus with a reference to the Antichrist in Revelation 13. The second thing we see in this passage, the second thing that Scripture tells us about Judas's betrayal is that Judas's betrayal was premeditated. We don't know at what point Judas decided to do this. It could have been when Jesus referred to one of the disciples as a devil. You're a devil. John chapter 6. It might have been when Judas got embarrassed regarding Mary and the expensive perfume in John chapter 12. Judas's vision for the ministry was very different from Jesus' vision of the, for the ministry. And for Judas, it was about profit margin to fatten up the treasury that he was stealing from. But for Jesus, it was about compassion and salvation. Matthew 26, 16, it says, And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas made the decision to betray Jesus at some point and then began looking for a good opportunity to do so. Luke 22, 3 says that Satan actually possessed Judas at this point. So another thing to note 
In Scripture, there's only one other person in the Bible that is said to be possessed by Satan himself besides Judas, and that is the Antichrist. So Luke 22, 6, he was looking for, Judas was looking for a good opportunity to seize Jesus, to, to betray Jesus in the absence of a crowd. Judas was bringing a crowd. He didn't want his crowd to be met with another crowd that was loyal to Christ. And he was leading soldiers, a good crowd of soldiers with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. He didn't want to create a scene where his life was in danger. He just needed to identify the man and get out of there. And so the final thing we see is that Judas's betrayal was regretted. His betrayal was regretted. We know when Satan entered Judas, but we don't know when he left him. And I would assume it was before this event, before the moment of Judas's regret. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 8, says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, again, connecting these events to Zechariah 11, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. In this moment, possibly the most dramatic 24 hours in all of human history, Judas regretted betraying Jesus. And why wouldn't he regret it? Jesus was the only perfect man to walk the planet. He was full of compassion full of wisdom, full of love, full of grace and truth. Judas had probably seen firsthand most of the three years worth of Jesus' ministry. He had been there when Jesus divided the loaves and fishes. He had seen dead men and women be raised to life. He had seen all the miracles, all the healings, and he had heard all the teachings. And when Satan had used Judas for his purposes, he was done with him and he left him. And that's exactly what Satan does. He makes grand promises, but he's the father of lies. Once you've done what he wanted you to do, he's through with you. Judas felt remorse so intensely that it led to him committing suicide. Let's look at another disciple. Because there was another disciple that betrayed Jesus that same day. But the outcome was dramatically different. When Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, all the disciples scattered in fear when they thought they were going to be arrested as well. And at the end of Matthew 26, Peter caught up to where Jesus was, but he stayed a safe distance away from him. A servant girl came up to him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it. 
and said, I don't know what you're talking about. Another servant girl noticed him and said to the others nearby, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it by swearing that he didn't know the man. Finally, a group of people came up to Peter and they said, you are definitely one of his disciples because your Galilean accent gives you away. I love that. My wife and I, we, we were on our uh, uh, anniversary trip one year, and we went to uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, where you think that everybody talks like they're from Mississippi. And we went into a CVS to buy something, and the guy, and so we full on, you know, are doing the Mississippi accent, you know, and because I lived there for a little bit, so I get it, and we would talk like we're from Mississippi, real thick. And this guy who's checking us out is like, you got to slide your card. You can't use the chip. You got to slide your card. And I was like, you're not from around here, are you, son? And he said, I'm from Boston. I'm like, oh, of course you are. You see, northern accents, southern accents, when you hear somebody's accent, it gives away they're not from around here. And that's exactly what they accused Peter of. We know you are. You ain't from around these parts. Your northern Galilean accent gives you away. Matthew 26, 74 through 75. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Luke's account of this story says that at that very moment when Peter pronounced the curse upon himself that he did not know Jesus, Luke says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. You can't get more dramatic than that. The person that you have betrayed turns and looks at you and catches you. You see, just a few hours earlier, Peter had told Jesus that he would die in Jesus' place. I'll be the substitute for the substitute. I will die in your place, Jesus. But Jesus knew Peter's heart and he knew what would actually take place. And he told him the truth. He said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Before the heat is on, it's easy for us to stand up for Jesus. But what will you do when that moment comes? What will you do when confronted by an angry mob? Will you stand up for Jesus even if you're standing alone? When Peter locked eyes with Jesus, his Messiah and Lord, that he said he loved more than his own life, Peter broke away from the crowd and he wept bitterly. The Greek word there for bitter means violently. Judas' betrayal led him to suicide because his heart was never wholly surrendered to Jesus. He was only following Jesus to benefit his own pocket. But Peter's betrayal led him to repentance. Because though, he was perf- he, because though Peter was not perfect, he was yielded to the master. It's not enough for us just to regret the things that we've done, the sins we've committed against God. 
We should feel a good amount of regret for violating God's commands, but regret isn't enough. Our regret must lead to repentance. That is the only way there will ever be reconciliation with the Father. J.C. Ryle, he was an evangelical Anglican bishop of uh, the city of Liverpool back in the 1800s. And he wrote that there are five marks of true repentance. We can know whether we've truly repented if we demonstrate these five characteristics. So the first, and they're not in your notes, I just added this this morning, so you may have to jot them down real quick if you want to. But the first is true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. True repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. Um, Your eyes are open to the truth about what sin is and what it does to you. You realize there's no such thing as a good sin. You realize also there's no such thing as a good person. Everyone on this planet is either a sinner with a corrupt heart or a repentant sinner saved by God's grace. When We have to have a knowledge of sin and what it does to us. Second, true repentance produces sorrow for sin. True repentance produces sorrow for sin. Once you know that you've committed sin and wickedness against a holy God, you feel sorrow over it. The reality of your sinful state cuts you to your heart. You mourn over your wasted life, your wasted talents. You mourn over God being dishonored through your actions and the consequences of sin in your own life. Third, true repentance produces confession of sin. It produces confession of sin. If Judas was on the path to repentance, he stopped just short of this one. And though we can easily be overwhelmed by the gravity of our sin, and we feel like there's nothing we could ever say to make it right with God, we must confess our sins to God to receive forgiveness. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is where your heart cries out, I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you. My iniquity is great. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We confess our sins. Number four, true, repent, true repentance produces a breaking off from sin. When you repent, God gives you a new life. He gives you a new heart. He gives you new eyes to see the world. When you are tempted to sin, you realize the damage that it causes to your soul and to your relationship with God. And you realize, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to sin because of what it does to me and what it does to my relationship with the Lord. And so there is a breaking off of sin. You realize that you don't want to sin. That you love Christ more than you love that thing. 
that is dragging you down and weighing you down. So you fight the temptations and you seek to get victory over the sin. And finally, number five, true repentance produces a deep hatred of sin. A deep hatred of sin. When you have a revelation of the holiness of God, you will not want to sin against him. When you understand what Jesus Christ did for you, when you understand what your sin did to Jesus and the price that it cost him for you to be forgiven, you will hate the sin that put him on the cross. We're not talking about hating people. We're not talking about hating sinners. Sinners sin. That's what they do. It's in the job description. That's what all of us did before we came to Christ. But when we come to Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we will weep over our sin. We will hate what is evil and we will long for what is good. When we see things on TV, when we see things in our community, in our society, that are filled with sin and hatred. We'll weep over those things. It will break our heart. For the things that break God's heart. And you'll find yourself echoing the words of David from Psalm 119, 128. When he wrote, each of your commandments is right. That is why I hate every false way. I hate every false way. Never met anybody that says, man, my best friend is a liar. I know he's a liar. It's okay. It's totally cool. I know I can't trust him. I can't trust anything he says. He says it's 2 o'clock. It's not. It's, you know, 5.15. But it's totally cool. He's my best friend. No, you're not going to be friends with that person. You're going to hate the fact that they lie all the time. If you've got a friend that's a cheater or a thief or whatever, you're going to hate that. Because it's contrary to the spirit that God has put inside of you, the Holy Spirit. Holy is the operative word. The Holy Spirit will be in opposition. I don't know about you, but if there are times where you come across somebody, maybe at work, in your community, hopefully not in your own home, but if somebody walks up to you and the Holy Spirit just, it's like a cat with, with its, or a dog with its hackles up, you know? It's just like, you don't You don't want to be around that person because the Holy Spirit inside of you is in direct opposition to the Spirit that's inside of them. And that is exactly what happens when we hate sin, when we feel that that, uh, deep, deep uh, hatred for our sin and the sin that is dragging everybody else to hell. And sadly, a lot of people are like Judas. They do something they know they shouldn't do, and they regret it. And regret starts them down the road to repentance. But they stop well short of it producing the fruit of righteousness. Ask yourself, how many of of you have those characteristics? Those five characteristics of true repentance. Are you aware of your sin? When When you make a mistake, when you sin, when you fall short, when you blow it? Are you aware of it? Do you feel sorrow for your sin? Do you feel guilty for the things that you've done? Do you regret doing those things? Have you confessed your sin to God? 
you don't need to, no, we're not passing a microphone around and asking everybody to say, okay, list 10 sins you did this week and we'll bless you. You know, we're not going to ask you to confess your sins to us. You might have sinned against us. And if you did sin against somebody, you should go to them and ask for their forgiveness. But your sin primarily is against the holy God. Do you have sorrow for your sin? Have you confessed your sin to God? Have you broken off from the life of sin? It seems like that's really where a lot of people struggle. We love the forgiveness. We love the grace and the mercy and the promise of heaven that Jesus gives, but we sometimes stop when it comes to breaking off from our sin. See, we want to keep sinning and just enjoy the grace. We want to keep doing what we want to do and yet come to church on Sunday and ask, and we feel the guilt, we feel the conviction, and so we say, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sins and cleanse me from all my unrighteousness and create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away from your presence and give me your Holy Spirit. I have that memorized because I used to pray it as a teenager every Sunday. I feel the conviction. And on Monday morning, don't you know what I was doing? Back to living a life of sin because I had not cast off my life of sin. I had not broken away from it. Lastly, do you feel a deep sense of hatred for sin? Because of what it did to you? Because of what it does to others? What it does to marriages? What it does to families? What it is doing to our community and our country and our world? Sin has broken the godliness that people could have, but they're willing to hold on to their sin and they're not willing to weep over their sin. Possibly referring to the betrayals of Judas and Peter, the apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Once Peter had repented, there was no further need of regret. His regret had moved him to repentance, which then moved him to salvation. But Judas never repented. His grief over his sin was rooted in worldly motives, and it produced, as Paul said, his own death. I'll ask our worship team to come up. Thankfully, this is not where we end our story. At the end of Mark's gospel, after the resurrection of Jesus, we come across two of the most significant and powerful words, in my opinion, in the entire Bible. Two of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. Two words that are easily missed. Two words that most people read and probably never notice. But they're two words that speak volume about the pursuit of God to those whose hearts are right. Two words that are on display. And that display, God's compassion, his love, and his amazing grace. What are those words? Well, we find them in Mark 16. We're going to read a couple verses. 1 through 7, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices 
so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And, on, and very early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us, from the, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where, he, where they laid him. But go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What are the most beautiful words in the whole Bible? In my opinion, Mark 16, 7, the words, and Peter. Tell the disciples, all of them. All the ones who scattered and ran away when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. All of them who hid in fear that they would be arrested and beaten and crucified too. Go tell all of them that Jesus is written, but don't just tell them. Tell them and Peter. Isn't it such a great comfort to know that God's grace is sufficient for us? As one song says, there's no place I could go where you won't find me. There's no place I could hide that you don't see. No place I could fall where your love couldn't catch me. Friday's betrayal leads to Saturday's repentance, which leads to Sunday's restoration. How is that possible? Because we serve a God who loves us who has sacrificed himself for us and who longs to be reconciled with us. Peter's betrayal wasn't the end of the story for Peter. For him, it was a new beginning. The lessons that he learned when he ran away on crucifixion Friday led him to be able to stand up on Pentecost Sunday, 40 days later, and lead 3,000 people to the same salvation that had restored him. Would you stand with me this morning? Our worship team is going to lead us in a song that reminds us of God's amazing grace, that his grace is greater than all our sin. His grace is greater than then all our sin. When, as they sing this morning, would you take a few moments? Let the Holy Spirit put a searchlight on your own heart. God, what five of those steps of repentance have I not completed? What am I lacking? What do I need to do? Let the Holy Spirit shine a light on your heart. Are you where you need to be with the Lord? If not, There's no better time to resolve that issue than right now. As they sing, just open your heart to the Lord. Say, God, forgive me of all my sins. Cleanse me from all my trespasses. All the times where I sinned against you, create a clean heart in me. I weep over my sin. Forgive me for my sins. And help me to break away from them. And be broken because of my sin. But thank you, God, for the restoration that you promise. When we admit, when we confess our sins to you, you are faithful, you are just to forgive us our sins.
We all have favorite parts of different hymns, different songs. And, you know, when I was sitting there listening to it, um, the line that says dark, can, can you put, I think it's verse 3, the first line of verse 3, dark is this sin that you, stain that we cannot hide. And that really struck me just to remind us, folks, we're not kidding ourselves. When we think that we're, we can sin and it be hidden from the Lord, that it, we're just, we're, we're only fooling, we're not really even fooling ourselves because we know it's not true. We cannot hide the stain of sin on our life. It creates a, a stain on us. And God longs for us to be broken free from that. To receive the forgiveness, to be washed whiter than snow. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Only the blood of Christ can wash us whiter than snow. That the stain of sin has, is washed away. And we become who God wants us to be. We become the saints. And though we may not feel like it some days, we become children of God, his sons and his daughters, because we have acknowledged him as our father and we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Just remember that when you get tempted to sin, being tempted is not a sin. Everybody gets tempted. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, but he didn't sin. So being tempted is not a sin, but giving in to temptation is a sin. And anytime you get tempted to do something, just understand that the devil is only giving you part of the story. There may be some, some immediate benefit from doing that thing, but there will be consequences to those things. And those consequences dramatically outweigh the benefit. What it does to you, what, what your sin does to others, dramatically is, is more devastating to you. And God's benefit of accepting his forgiveness and grace is much greater than whatever the minimal thing that you get by sinning. And the scripture reminds us, when I was a kid, I heard it all the time. Be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure your sins will find you out. I'm like, why is it my responsibility? I need to be sure my sins find me out. Uh, No, thank you. I'll be sure my sins don't find me out. But really, it's be assured, comma, your sins will find you out. Be sure of this fact. You cannot hide your sin from God. So acknowledge your sins, repent of those sins, and come under submission to Christ because he only wants what's best for you. And those sins and those things that you're doing are not best for you. They can be devastating for you. They can lead you down a path that will absolutely destroy you and destroy God's desired future for you if you don't acknowledge them. Father, we come before you, and God, we ask for your forgiveness of our sins. We ask, God, we have sinned against you. We have sinned against others. We've sinned against our friends. We've betrayed them. We've, we've said or done things that we shouldn't have. We've fallen short of your glory, of your standard. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. There's no payment we could make 
that would make it right. And so we acknowledge the payment of Jesus Christ. And we receive it. We accept it on our lives. And we thank you for it. A gift that we could never have given ourselves. A payment we could never have paid. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. And we thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we're tempted to sin, Lord, help us always remember the cost. Help us remember what it cost you for us to be forgiven. So that we will not want to sin. So that sin loses all power over us. We can walk in your grace and your goodness and your holiness, that we can be holy as you are holy. We thank you, Lord, for that. We pray, Lord, for this week. We know folks are traveling for Thanksgiving, coming in town, going out of town. We pray, Lord, for your hand of protection to be upon them. As we sit around the table with our friends, with our family, with maybe we're just having Thanksgiving by ourselves, but on Thanksgiving Day, Let us pause, Lord, to remember all that we have to be thankful for. We are so grateful for our friends and our family. We're grateful for our church. We're grateful, God, most importantly for you, what you've done in us, what you're doing through us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would remember um, to give thanks to you for all that you have done, all that you're doing, and all that you are. We love you, Lord. Be exalted in our lives this week as we go throughout our community. Let us be salt and light in this community to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.